and welcome to the American Civil War Podcast, Episode 47, The Use of Weapons. Drill, Drill, and a Little More Drill. In discussing the nature of Civil War combat, we should always consider the techniques taught into the average soldier. Although the actual experience of battle would always vary substantially from the theory, soldiers hopefully brought at least the rudiments of combat to the fight. From the perspective of the sergeants and officers who put the men through their paces, this had several goals. First, hopefully the soldiers would learn how to shoot well enough to actually send some bullets downrange at the enemy. Second, the men, hopefully, could actually fall into line promptly and obey orders quickly enough to fight effectively. Third, and possibly most important of all, men needed some amount of emotional bracing. In those days, men might think of this as physical courage as opposed to moral courage. However one thought of it, it wasn't easy. A large proportion of Civil War soldiers ran like the wind the first time they saw combat. This was so commonplace that no one really blamed soldiers for it. As many as half of a given unit might flee once the shooting started, and often the other half followed in confusion or swift defeat because their ranks suddenly thinned. But that was only the beginning of their very first fight. Nearly all those soldiers would rally behind their officers, or even do so on their own without prompting. They would quickly return to the battle, and fight alongside their comrades-in-arms as furiously as they first ran away. The chilling shock of combat, what the men often called seeing the elephant, was a surprise that swept away men's senses, but they got over it. The Civil War battlefield was a frightening place, not entirely unique, but still unusually so in the history of warfare. When soldiers went into battle, they did so often seeing unlucky friends picked off at long range, blood and gore exploding all over. A single cannon shell could decimate a company before it even reached the first battlefield, while sharpshooters might cut down men before they could even bring their own rifles to bear. Adding to the fear from sight alone was the rattle of rifles and the crash of cannon, the screaming of horses and men shot down, and the omnipresent shouting. The auditory chaos exerted an invisible pressure on the soldiers until they acclimated to this new environment. In short, there was a lot for men to deal with, and few handled their very first battle well. They became distracted, frightened, confused, or hyper-focused. Also, they had to deal with whatever noise the regimental band might be making, because that was a thing. And yes, we'll get to that. There's really nothing quite like exchanging mini-balls on the front lines while hearing dueling bands play Yankee Doodle Dandy and Dixie. Now, in most wars, some simple organization existed to help guide soldiers into battle. Because we brought up the example of old-style formation melee fighting before, spearmen and pikemen often fought in tight ranks, thousands of years before men met at Gettysburg. These formations often, not always, but often kept veterans at the back specifically to help steady the men in front. And in practice, most armies through the years have some other method of helping to support the faint-hearted. Civil War armies, however, took on the essentials of Napoleonic warfare and extended it, and doing so lost much of the remaining bulk that helped steady the lines. Even the greenest of soldiers had to fight in elongated, spread-out formations, but the increased lethality of war and that peculiarly bloody form of it made it harder to stomach. So with that out of the way, let's examine in more detail what soldiers actually studied 
and how they train themselves to march and to fight, to develop the discipline of warfare. The first task of the soldier was to learn all the basic commands of the army, and within two or three months, to go from fumbling about in their new uniforms to sharp marching in shabby uniforms. In theory, soldiers would learn to recognize all the ranks, to obey, to march, to stand at attention, and the ability to quickly change facing and deploy swiftly even under fire. These actions all meant more in combat than firearms drill, although we'll get to that as well. Before rolling on with this topic, we should also understand the sources that soldiers learned from, because that will make a difference as to what and how they learn. First, some of the troops received instructions directly from experienced regular officers or sergeants who knew the methods. However, simply by law of averages, the vast majority got their information from men no more professional than themselves. Therefore, drill manuals were of substantial importance. The United States and Confederacy both used essentially the same manual at the start of the war, Hardy's Rifle and Light Infantry Tactics. This was written by one William J. Hardy, an American officer before the war. He will eventually rise to the rank of lieutenant general after siding with the Confederacy. On the Union side, Brigadier Silas Casey issued a revised and expanded version in 1862, although it did not alter the fundamentals of drill. All the manuals, broadly speaking, assumed that infantry soldiers would more or less use the same style of weaponry as in older wars, in part because the first edition of Hardy's Tactics came out in 1855. The new technology of the modern rifle had only begun to come into service and had not yet been seriously tested under battlefield conditions. Therefore, most of the drill Hardy documented continued the traditional forms, changed relatively little from Napoleonic warfare or the Mexican-American War, for that matter. That said, there were good reasons for most of the training decisions. They did not simply happen because of hidebound stupidity. Although, indeed, many of the lessons were beginning to become outdated due to changing conditions. The basic problem of warfare, however, remained the issue of getting soldiers to the battlefield effectively. Even the advent of the rail era didn't remove the requirement for long marches. As such, one of the first things taught to the troops was specifically how to march. Now, in principle, the army had a prescribed method to marching, a kind of quick-legged stride that, in theory, the soldiers should keep in precise alignment with their fellows. The army mandated steps of 28 inches, neither more nor less, and that each should occur in two-thirds of a second. In practice, it appeared this rarely happened. American soldiers marched to the beat of a different drummer, or a thousand different drummers, or perhaps no drummer at all. That said, they proved capable of exhausting feats of endurance on foot regardless. What they lacked in mechanical precision, they made up for in energy. Besides, what worked on a flat parade ground made very little difference on a dusty road or a battlefield. Now again, there were reasons that the army was so specific about what it wanted. The stride was meant so that soldiers could keep in relatively close order without stumbling over one another. But in any case, whether it was good stride or bad, marching alone just wasn't enough. The troops also had to be capable of advancing in formation at a jog, referred to as double-quick time. Officers might also command the soldiers to run into action when necessary. Men obviously needed little encouragement to run away from the fight. But formations tended to break down quickly when doing so. 
Additionally, even casual marches on peaceful roads would create awkward situations when you have a few thousand men together. Remember how the short, easy march to Bull Run went completely wrong. So the army also prescribed methods for keeping ranks in order, even on wide turns, as one side or another of the formation would be identified as the leader, and the far side expected to keep in time, in step with their proper file in military parlance. A file is simply any strictly kept line of troops side by side, whether they were marching in a column or assembled into one long line of battle. Files would have so-called file closers, usually non-commissioned officers, to watch the ranks and ensure they were keeping in formation. Each formation had its own assigned locations for file closers. Officers, both commissioned and non-commissioned, and the ranks would all have to learn each of these formations. All of this was primarily intended to get soldiers up to the fight, or at least to the most important part of one. As such, they also must learn how to change out of the marching formation once it came time to do so. Soldiers had to know, almost instinctively, how to deploy into a line or multiple lines of battle. Now, marching formations were almost useless for any actual fighting. In brief, Although numerous variations existed, soldiers necessarily marched in narrow columns. This specific width, and therefore length, came down to the size of the unit and the available road or path. In extreme circumstances, such as following a mountain trail, an entire regiment might get strung out in a single line, but that was quite unusual. Marching formations normally had four men abreast. The trick was that column formations made marching practical, but battle impossible. Enemy fire could and would rake the line and tear holes in the ranks without giving soldiers the ability to retaliate. A single cannon shell could rip through the entire column front to back. So when confronted by imminent battle, the men then had to expand outward into a linear formation. The thinner the line, the less vulnerable to enemy fire, but the less concentrated its firepower. Similarly, in order to actually get dozens, hundreds, or thousands of soldiers all into the right place, the men needed to know how and when to abruptly switch their facing to the right or left as needed, or wheeling around following the column without collapsing into disorder. Although simple in concept, doing this under fire required considerable coolness and discipline, hence it became one of the most heavily trained actions. While several specific options existed for performing these maneuvers, the most important thing was for the soldiers to familiarize themselves with each concept and be able to do so immediately under pressure. Deploying from a column formation would always cost some amount of time, and the soldiers were generally vulnerable and unable to fight back effectively while doing so. In addition, they needed to be able to avoid a flank attack by the enemy. Therefore, the soldiers must learn to turn and stare down any threat when ordered, hence the rigorous training to quickly understand and obey. Again, whether marching or fighting, each formation had its own particular arrangement for the non-commissioned officers, most significantly sergeants. Depending on the exact formation, these would take up the key positions, allowing them to direct the soldiers and keep them from falling out of line. In practice, as wounded men broke ranks to seek aid or simply died on the field, officers, non-coms, and the ranks alike improvised as best they could, rallying around the colors. This is where the importance of corporals comes into play. Corporals are another variety of non-commissioned officers. 
They also directed soldiers, and generally had the proud task of maintaining the unit's heraldry. The colors, or the flags of the unit, are a literal ancient concept still used today for ceremonial purposes. Military units, for eons, have employed banners or flags to order and rally their soldiers. Banners allow men in the ranks to roughly see where their units ought to be at a glance, even when they might be incapable of seeing past the throng of fellow soldiers. They can look up to the colors. As a result, the banners of a unit often become deeply identified with the unit itself, or alternatively, its invisible sense of honor. This tradition was not changed by the Civil War. The regimental colors became, in effect, almost less truly medieval holdover in warfare. After the first fumbling clashes of amateur soldiers, the men in ranks quickly learned to treasure their colors and guard them with their bodies. Only the most base and infamous sort would willingly surrender their colors except in desperation and defeat, and carrying them into battle became an honor, not a burden. Of course, a man carrying them couldn't also carry a rifle, but he urged his friends forward and led them into the teeth of enemy bullets and bayonets. Color guards often chose certain death over allowing any shame or stain of cowardice on their flags. But discussing the matter of rifle brings us to one of the most carefully drilled aspects of Civil War fighting, and also potentially the least important. That was firearms drill. In one sense, this had changed very little since the days when Continental Minutemen faced off against the British regulars. Evolutionary improvements upgraded the musket in its transformation to the rifle. Yet, many of the basic mechanics of firing one changed but little. By the time of the Civil War, hard experience and developing technology had simplified this process slightly. But in essence, soldiers still carried out roughly the same repetitive firing actions. First, the soldier should stand with his heels close together and the feet apart. One should then firmly plant the rifle, buttstock first, on the ground. The soldier will then remove a paper cartridge from his pouch, which generally held 40 rounds when anticipating battle. He would rip it open with his teeth, leading to soldiers quickly having powder-blackened mouths by the end of drill or fighting, then pour the powder down the barrel. He would drop in the mini-ball, remove the ramrod, and firmly tamp the mini-ball and powder down to the end. And please, soldier, remember that the pointy end of the mini-ball should go towards the enemy. Then he removed the ramrod. We hope. At this point, the soldier would hoist the rifle to his hip. He would cock the gun, pulling back the firing pin on the hammer to its ready state. Then he would remove a single percussion cap. These could be kept loose in a pouch, but alternatively, rolls or tins provide a method of keeping them safe and removing them singly. Whatever the source, the percussion cap would be placed on a nib located on the breech. Finally, the soldier placed the gun firmly against his shoulder, took careful aim, and fired. Although somewhat complex to describe, a trained line infantryman ought to carry out these steps every 20 seconds, perhaps even faster. Experts on the parade ground could carry out all of these much quicker, reloading and firing every 10 seconds, or even doing slightly better than that. Doing so in battle was impractical, but the actions were trained over and over to ingrain them in the mind and hands until they became second nature. Now, as a minor note, many sources 
appear to have slightly different notions of how to divide up those steps, from loaded nine times to loaded four times. This is more a detail of how different thinkers conceptualize the steps, because in the end all were necessary until the adoption of breech-loading arms changed the process completely. These steps could, and often were, called out by sergeants even during the battle, with the intention of controlling and directing the firepower of the men. In practice, a line of infantry often broke into reloading and firing at will after a few volleys. There are good reasons for this. For one, it rapidly became difficult or impossible to hear even the loudest sergeant's voice once the guns began to fire. But in addition, even soldiers in the most well-drilled company could not take simultaneous aim against foes who went to ground and sought cover. Some would slightly delay their fire to take better aim, while others might err on the side of sending as many bullets downrange as possible. Manuals urged that soldiers should never waste bullets by trying to fire as rapidly as possible, but always carefully aim their rifles. But of course the swirl and adrenaline of the battlefield have their own dictates on the subject. The bit about soldiers accidentally putting in their mini-balls backward or forgetting to remove their ramrods was not a joke. Soldiers often fired so rapidly that they mistakenly forgot key steps, such as failing to remove those ramrods, which then went flying uselessly into the air, or in the chaos ramming down bullet after bullet because the gun failed to fire at all. Of course, that was only fire while standing, and alternatives existed which also required their own drill. Soldiers might also train in reloading while kneeling, and even in the prone position. This required some additional dexterity and thought to avoid smacking your friend in the face. Now, kneeling wasn't that complicated to master, but to reload while prone required tricky maneuvering to reload from the muzzle, getting the ramrod down the barrel, and then bringing it back up to ready. For this reason, troops under cover often resorted to a bit of an improvised solution not found in the manuals. While keeping their heads down, a rear rank might reload and pass the rifles forward, taking the guns just fired and reloading those in turn. This did thin the volume of fire by half, at least, but with the advantage of doing so under as much cover as possible, and allowing the men to focus more effectively on one task while keeping up continuous fire. Now, soldiers would also practice bayonet use. But as we've mentioned previously, the average fighting man rarely found much good for it. In principle, they would stab targets or dummies in an attempt to train themselves to stick the business end of the bayonet into the enemy's gut. That way, the blade would penetrate the abdomen, where there was no bone to stop it. Although such wounds were debilitating, they were not necessarily lethal based on the pure physical damage. That said, American soldiers often seemed unwilling to deliver them even if they had the opportunity. Apart from the fact that the bayonets often got stuffed into a pack as soldiers didn't keep them on hand for battle, doing so was psychologically challenging. Stabbing the man in the stomach requires a kind of cold readiness to kill that most soldiers simply lacked. Many European armies trained very heavily to achieve that, but Americans either didn't or just wouldn't. To stand off at fire range, even when taking aim at an individual man, allowed for psychological distancing from the act of killing, in contrast to close quarters combat. Before moving on, let us deal with one point regarding the marksmanship of the average American. In contrast to most European recruits, Americans probably had, on average, repeat 
average, more familiarity with firearms. They were extremely common in most communities, and especially in agriculture or on the vast frontier. Millions of Americans lived on small farms or hunted for meat seasonally. Many shot for sport or competition. However, and this is a key point, they were not at all familiar with military marksmanship, an entirely different matter. A hunter could, and would, take aim where it worked, but did not need to reload rapidly and could aim, fire, and reload alike without the pressure of having to do so in a prescribed manner to avoid interfering with all the fellow soldiers around them. All that had to be trained and drilled until it became second nature. Because of this, there wasn't realistically very much difference between a man who had never seen a firearm and one with great civilian proficiency in the main. Both would find themselves about equal on the military firing line, and the average marksmanship under battlefield conditions meant little. The importance of concentrating all available firepower to drive back or disperse an opposing enemy unit meant much more than good aim. There were exceptions, however, because armies had bodies of sharpshooters, entire regiments in some cases. Although not always consistently armed, most had the most accurate rifles on the battlefield and sometimes even telescopic sights. Sharpshooters, at times, picked off men at ranges of 500 yards or more, well beyond the killing range of most Civil War rifles. However, only the best shots could enter the ranks of the sharpshooters, and many of them actually brought their own firearms from home because few government-issued rifles had the kind of accuracy at those ranges. Sharpshooters existed in both state militias and national service, and in both Union and Confederate service. One point to note is that post-battle records often describe sharpshooters where there were no units so designated. This is not because the officers making the notes were mistaken exactly. Rather, it's because small detachments of soldiers would almost always fire on whatever enemy they saw if the range allowed for it. Any man, therefore, might take on the role of a sharpshooter, even if they were not specifically trained or equipped for it, especially skirmishers. Now, sharpshooters were not the only irregulars on the battlefield, although it is not entirely accurate to call skirmishers irregulars at all. In fact, standard battle doctrine employed skirmishers. They were just regular soldiers, line infantry, and did not receive any special training for the role. It was just one assignment that might be handed to this or that platoon or battalion. The point of skirmishers, however, was to range out ahead of a column and ensure it wasn't surprised. They would, of course, alert their fellows that trouble was coming, and in addition they would pepper any attackers and hopefully force them to feel out the position. This would garner even more valuable time for the main body. Given the size of Civil War armies, surprise might appear impossible. Yet as we've already seen in early battles, a combination of weather, thick woods, or even just a chance encounter caused surprise. A unit caught unprepared could quickly be broken beyond immediate recourse. Skirmishers, in theory at least, should be deployed ahead and often to the flanks of the main body to prevent this outcome. Again, while the manuals might specify complex arrangements with geometric precision, skirmishers in practice were always loosely deployed, and the trainers understood this. From Casey's manual, a chain of skirmishers ought generally to preserve their alignment but no advantages which the ground may present should be sacrificed to attain this regularity. And later, 
Skirmishers should be particularly instructed to take advantage of any cover which the ground may offer, and should lie flat on the ground whenever such movement is necessary to protect them from the fire of the enemy. Regularity in the alignment should yield to his important advantage. Skirmishers, unlike a general line of battle, had too few numbers to ever beat a foe through firepower, and therefore required as much cover as could be had. Once forced back by the weight of numbers, which was normal and expected, skirmishers would reform behind the main body of troops, and then join the fight if not deployed elsewhere. Now, we previously joked at the importance of regimental bands to the army. But in fact, they were of routine everyday importance, and their work carefully described. Units rose to the morning call of the reveille, sometimes marched, very roughly, to the beat of a drummer, assembled for meals when the music called, assembled for other purposes, for a more general tune, charged into battle at the bugle's sound, and so on. It didn't always happen as described, of course. Musicians are not invulnerable to bullets, and even the hardiest drummer might find it difficult to keep time correctly over uneven ground. Yet it was often there, and there was a point to it. The army didn't have other methods. A full regiment held a thousand men, although rarely did they go into even their first battle with more than 800 or so. And those might end up spread over a considerable space, with the crack of rifles and the crash of cannon going off nearby. Even in the relative quiet of camp, men could hear the music and would pay attention to it in a way that didn't require some long-suffering sergeant to scream his head off. Music carried farther, if imperfectly, than the human voice. Those, at any rate, were the elements covered in the formal infantryman's drill manual. But soldiering required more, much more. The manuals ostensibly taught men how to fight a modern war, but in practice, they wound up developing their own techniques, seeing what worked and what didn't for themselves. So it was that the battlefield, and not the campground, became the ultimate school of war. In addition, although many soldiers received hours of drill meant to impart military skills, others simply didn't. As often as not, units assembled and figured out marching for themselves, and then immediately went on campaign as soon as they arrived in camp. For thousands of soldiers... Far-off places such as Shiloh and Antietam became the training ground, often with gruesome results. Officers with experience in the Mexican-American War certainly prioritized drill, because it did work. While often outdated, even outdated training helped everyone know what to do once the shooting started, and how to avoid getting into an impossible situation. Drill alone wouldn't turn a man into a good soldier, but it would give him the basic tools to turn himself into that soldier. For a start, George McClellan took the opportunity of the failure at Bull Run to drill and drill and drill his growing Army of the Potomac until it shined. It is true that he would ultimately fail to use that body effectively. Yet after three months on the parade ground, it was probably the finest army ever assembled in the Americas. However, how McClellan will fail to use that is a story for another time. Now, there will be no episode next week. I'm going home where I'm going to congratulate my brother for getting his master's. If you're listening, little bro, I'm awfully proud of you. This has been the American Civil War Podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.